We are quickly working our way through Lent. We are at, this, is, this next week that is coming up is sort of the halfway point between uh, Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. Uh, so if you have been participating in a fast throughout uh, the season of Lent, you are almost halfway finished, right? Almost halfway to the donuts and the desserts. <laughs> All right, whatever it was that you gave up. This past week, our children were out on spring break, and we didn't really do a whole lot of organized activities, and so it was a struggle for us to keep our fast as we uh, were a family uh, at home for the most part this week, but uh, we struggled through that. And it brings us to an important point, and it's one of the reasons why uh, in our opening liturgy we confess together uh, that perfection is a myth. Right? Uh, because for most of us, I think, if we set out to do something and there's some sort of struggle or some sort of failure, we just kind of want to throw our hands up and, and, and be really hard on ourselves and upset at ourselves. But the reality is that even uh, when we are fasting, that there is grace to be found in that. Right? So whether your struggle uh, has been one of ease or one of difficulty, whether you have uh, been able to faithfully keep your fast or uh, you have gone back and forth on it, uh, wherever it is, I hope that it has led you towards grace and peace. Right? Jesus actually said, if you read the scriptures later on this afternoon, he said, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast or perhaps you should consider fasting. He said when you fast, which would suggest to us that is an expectation of those living in the kingdom, that at some point in our lives we would practice the discipline of fasting. And why is it important? It's important because it helps us to flex our discipline muscle. It helps us to exercise our discipline muscle, to be able to say no to things that we need to say no to. Uh, and also opening ourselves up to the things that we need to say yes to as well. Uh, one of the things that a, a philosopher named Dallas Willard talked about was that uh, there are that in the kingdom of heaven, those who are alive in the kingdom of heaven in this world, that there is a difference between earning and effort. See, trying to earn grace, trying to earn our way in the kingdom is contrary to what Jesus taught us. But we don't just sit back and wait for something to happen, wait for our lives to be formed. We put forth effort, and it's through that effort that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, refines us so that we are able to bear his image and if we aren't consistent with spiritual disciplines like fasting, uh, then we will struggle to see clearly the way of Jesus in our lives. So as we uh, are working through Lent, we are looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, we've been working our way through the blessed statements. Uh, last week, we sort of jumped ahead to talking about lust. This week, we're going to circle back to talk about peacemaking. Um, and in doing so, in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite uh, some people up to talk about what does it mean to actively work towards peace in our world. But before we do that, we need to kind of have an understanding 
understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about peace, because I think there can be some misconceptions with this. First of all, peace does not mean the absence of conflict. It's important to remember, as it is always when we're talking about things with the kingdom of Jesus, that they're not dependent upon our circumstances. The things of Jesus are not dependent upon what is going on around us. They are an inward direction, an inward working on of the Holy Spirit that does work through us and, and offer the opportunity uh, to influence and impact our world. But that doesn't mean that it always works out that way. So in the Old Testament, there's a word for peace called shalom. And the idea of shalom is much more robust than what we understand as peace today. Shalom meant wholeness. It meant that everything was working together the way that it should. So when we talk about peace in the kingdom, we're not just talking about getting along or being nice to someone. We're talking about everything working along together in the way that it should be. When we greet one another as we pass the peace, we're not just saying, you know, hey, I hope you get along well today. What we're actually offering each other is a reminder of the wholeness and grace and fullness of the kingdom of God. So sometimes, even as a peacemaker, we will experience conflict. But as Jesus forms and shapes us more and more and more and more into his image for the sake of others, the actions that we take, the behaviors that we find ourselves enacting more and more open up the opportunity for things to work together in the way that they should. When we act as peacemakers, we create the opportunity for grace and peace to ensue. So as we discover what does it mean for us to be peacemakers, um, I have a couple of friends that, um, as I have talked with them about this topic, uh, have showed me that they have practical experience in being peacemakers today. And so I'm going to ask um, Jeremy if he will come up and Adam if he will come up. Um, Jeremy on, is, uh, introduced himself earlier uh, as our executive pastor here. Uh, I don't know if you all are aware of this about Jeremy, uh, but before he was a pastor, Jeremy served in the uh, United States Army and did two tours overseas, um, living in uh, pretty harsh conditions that many of us have never faced, um, but enduring it, uh, and then came home and decided uh, he wanted to become a pastor. Um, Adam's journey is sort of the reverse of that. Um, Adam and I have known each other since high school. Adam actually, for a little bit, dated Kelly, my wife, um, and we're still friends, so everything's okay with that. Uh, but uh, Adam and I went to university together. We roomed together. Uh, we both were studying theology and ministry together. And then I abandoned him and uh, moved on to different things. But uh, Adam was a youth pastor for many years. 
10 years, and then um, through a series of events in the last few years, uh, became a police officer. So um, both of them have uh, a pastoral journey uh, in common, but then also uh, doing things that um, aren't often thought of as peaceful uh, things. So I thought rather than me musing about what does it mean to keep peace, that we would actually talk to people who have practical experience in what does that look like. So did I, do you guys want to introduce yourselves anymore, or does that about cover it? Uh, this, you might have, when you walked in, you might have thought this was Tom Selleck, uh, <laughs> but it's not, it's Adam. Uh, Only about a foot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, all right, uh, well, we'll just jump right into it this morning, and uh, we're going to get into, I'm going to ask a couple of questions of them, and um, we'll see how they respond. Um, but the first question is um, this, and Adam, I'll offer it to you first, but how do you see yourself um, as a follower of Jesus who happens to be a police officer, and then how does that relate to um, you being a peacemaker? All right, um... So coming from the perspective of a police officer, uh, I I first, right before I came up, I have to admit, a lot of times in my job, I don't feel like a peacemaker. Um, If you're honest, most people who interact with the police uh, are calling 911 or interacting with the police on a traffic stop. They would say, this is not their ideal day. Um, Very rare do I have interactions with people go, oh, that was a cool thing that I got to talk to this cop. Um, But... Uh, one of the things I learned about recently is where the idea of the thin blue line came from. A lot of you guys have heard that phrase before or seen the flag with a blue line going through it. Um, and that's the idea that there's this thin blue line that exists in our society between chaos and order. Um, so while I drive around on a normal day at work, I don't necessarily think about how can I be a peacemaker today. I focus on what can I do to keep chaos from inflicting upon the people that I serve. Um, and so that's, that's one perspective of it. And then I, I also look at the people that I deal with that um, might end up getting in trouble or go to jail or whatever it is, um, that in some way, like let's take narcotics for instance, that I might be prolonging their life um, because a lot of people that are doing drugs or consuming alcohol and getting in a car or walking around they have no idea what could be laced into those things. And I've been on enough overdose calls where I, I see that in some way as bringing peace to their lives. And I also see that as bringing peace into our society um, simply because the people that are engaged in illegal activity a lot of times inflict uh, chaos upon the normal citizens. Um, I find a lot of people that are engaged in illegal activity such as whatever they have on them or or people that are committing thefts or things like that. And so, again, the more proactive I see myself as being, the more I can see myself as pushing that line of chaos back, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, and uh, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about the beginning of Scripture where there's chaos and emptiness and God forms that um, into the world, right, and into offers shalom or offers his peace. Uh, there's definitely some symmetry there. Jeremy, what do you think? Yeah, now you're a pastor, but uh, pastoring, you know, keeping the peace is deciding what color of carpet to have and not <laughs> killing each other, right? But uh, in a war zone, it's a little bit different. But how do you uh, see yourself as a peacemaker 
in that experience? Uh, I think, yeah, we didn't have to worry about, well, you'd be surprised at how many people care about like the color of their, their tents and the floor <laughs> uh, when you're overseas and like the creature comforts that go with it. Um, and I was, a, so I was a logistics guy, so I, I, everybody came to me for stuff. So I was a lot of peacekeeping in that way. Um, you know, peacekeeping when we were, uh, I was in an infantry battalion for most of my army career. And those guys are just trained to kill. I mean, that's like their whole, or they don't say kill, they say close with and neutralize the threat. So it's a nice way to say they kill, you know, as fast as they can and aggressively. And uh, I, my journey, I was a Christian. I think we joked I was a heathen while I was in the army. I wasn't going to be a pastor or anything. I just was uh, this kid. Um, but a lot of the reason I got out of the army actually was because of like the mentality to kill. I mean, people were excited to do it. People were happy to do it. And um there's just like a lot of moral conflict with me to to celebrate that and to be a part of that and not have a, a spot where I could be a moral conscience to people. As a pastor, I have this role that, oh, you're the, you're the pastor. You can speak some, some great moral wisdom and godliness into our lives and stuff. And in the Army, I was, you're just a cog in the machine a lot of times. And so, like, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to be a moral conscience in that space. And so uh, I will share, before I came to Dallas, um, I think I've told most people here, but I was looking everywhere except Texas. I, Texas was not on my radar at all to come down here. And um, one of the, the avenues I was uh, exploring was going back into the Army to be a chaplain. Because um, what, one of, part of my calling was where there's, like, basically... If there's conflict, I should be in the worst of the situations. That was like my, what the calling I got was doing a message about uh, just awful things. And um, it was, you should be doing that. And so what better place to go than back into the army where now I could have an opportunity to be a moral conscience in there. Um, so, yeah, so I got out because it just, it was time, but also just, I, I couldn't be a, a member of a killing closing with the enemy and destroying as much as possible, especially as the war goes on, the war went on, it's over now, I guess. Um, like, you just were up there jacking people's lives up nonstop. We, like, we would, we'd set a field on fire and then we'd pay them a bunch of money because we'd say sorry. You know, like, sorry for setting your whole almond field and your livelihood on fire, here's a whole bunch of money. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem very right. If we just didn't do it in the first place, then we wouldn't have to pay them all the money, so... It's interesting when you think about these things and you, you know, of course we see them on the news and we see the highlights and the snippets and maybe the, you know, things in a more positive light than a negative light. But um, there is that intense struggle. And I think what's interesting is that struggle was something for you that you needed to withdraw from. And Adam, I know, you know, having a, a longer history with you than just these last several years of your transitioning into a police officer, there's always been some sort of desire to be that police officer, right? even though you were a pastor before that. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to see how God uh, moves in our lives in different ways. Um, and another thing, kind of a, a side note with this, um, specifically with Jeremy, and I hope uh, I can say this, but um, 
you know, with you sort of coming back around uh, to being involved here at the VFW, which I know is something that you're um, looking to do, it's interesting to to be able to come back into that environment, like you said, um, in a in a peacemaking way. Yeah, uh, I don't know if we're going to get to this, but that community of veterans is like a community that other people can't understand. I'm sure like even like a police brotherhood, I can't understand it because I'm not a police officer. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, like we just, it's so chaotic. Uh, we just had like the fifth person I know uh, from my unit commit suicide this past, like in the past week and a half. And it's like, it's, we've been away from war. That Our unit has been away from war for uh, 10 years now and it's still affecting people's lives. And so to go into that community that I know um, I can be something that hopefully is good and desirable is, um, and in the community that I can speak into because we have a familiar language is very exciting and um, like a, almost a calling. You know? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that uh, if you've been around Journey for uh, a while, you've probably heard us say is that God is never in a hurry. And if you study the scriptures, there's never a moment where God got in a hurry about anything. Um, God moved very slowly. Uh, and uh, something, as we were talking this past week, um, something dawned on me that um, you guys that kind of connected with this idea of moving slowly in its relationship to also being a peacemaker. Uh, so, um, Jeremy, I'll ask you first, but, um, what do you think about that? How does slow apply to peacemaking? Yeah, one of my favorite sayings actually I got from the Army is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Uh, I say it to myself all the time, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. But uh, the one story, I guess, in a real-world situation of acting slowly as a person is, was during my first tour to Iraq. Our job was convoy security. So we were stationed in Kuwait, and our job was to provide. Uh, I was in a gun truck, so I worked a machine gun on top of a truck, and we rode around and protected like 50-some trucks of supplies to go all around Iraq to different bases. And um, we drove at night, so the middle of the night, so nobody should be on the road. And we have um, all these de-escalation tactics and how you react and stuff. And uh, one of the things, we, we drove by a bomb, uh, an IED that didn't go off, and we, we spotted it. And so what happens, you have to pull security. So then you're out there for hours. Is the, the real technical people come out and they blow it up. And so uh, what happened is the, there's four of us, four gun trucks, two were stayed back with the bomb and you separate by like 300 meters. And we're, I was the rear element, the rear gun truck of all the trucks. So basically I was the last line of defense for all these supplies that were going. And uh, just some more tactics, if you ever get into it, you blow up all the supplies so people don't get resupplied and they're not happy and decreases morale. So this car pulls out, so remember 200, 300 meters, this car comes out and it pulls onto the street and there should be nobody on the road. And so it starts to drive forward. And so we start going through all our de-escalation tactics. We have this big green laser we shine at people, little pen flares, uh, you shoot a warning shot. And the last thing you do is you just, you just light up the car. You just shoot it with the machine gun, it's a 50 cal huge, and it just, you destroy everything you can. And this is our last, second to last mission on the trip and we had these new people coming in so we were doing training with this new unit and uh myself and my truck commander who i deployed with uh for the whole series and then these two new guys and this truck keeps coming 
And so we turn around and my uh, Sean, that's his name, my truck commander says, okay, I'm gonna go get out, which is not very smart if you don't know what's happening to get out of this armored truck, you know, full of machine guns and go up to this car, because we're scared. The reason we're scared about a car is, is a suicide bomber. They're using a lot of uh, suicide vehicle IEDs. And um, so he gets out and this other guy gets out with his, his little machine gun and Sean, I mean, this guy, brand new, fresh into the country, was ready to just shoot the car. I mean, he just was aggressive. That's how you're trained. And um, Sean yells at him, get back, get back in the car. And he said, cover me. I said, okay. And he walks up to this car, and he looks in, and he comes running back. He's like, oh, get on the radio. And I said, oh, gosh, we're about to blow up. You know, like he's, he's running. He is sprinting back from the car. And uh, he says, there's a pregnant lady in the back. And so we found out that it was a taxi car, a taxi cab, with uh, a dad and a lady who's pregnant who is like in active labor. So her whole, they're, they're just trying to get to the hospital, you know? And here we are, this, this occupying force with machine guns and lights and armor and all this stuff. Like, and she just needed to get to the hospital. And that like slow to act and slow to react uh, saved three lives and a, and a new life coming in. And that just has been like, formative in my, like, just slow down and assess the situation, so. That's great. Adam? Uh, so, in police work, we talk uh, with a phrase, I've heard some of the phrases you use, but we talk in phrases like, uh, um, is this a push or a hold? Because uh, we uh, don't have the, I don't know what it would be said, it's not privilege, but if we come up somebody that's against us, we don't necessarily just get to open fire on somebody, obviously. Um, and so we ask, like, is this a situation where I need to push the situation or is it something I need to just hold what I've got, slow down my thinking, slow down what I'm doing? And, and I thought of a story that I had probably uh, two or three months ago. <clears throat> I got called to a house for a, a disturbance. Um, this son of the family of the house and there's other family members that live there is just going uh, into a heightened state of being very angry, and he's been diagnosed with some mental health stuff. And apparently we had dealt with him two or three years prior and ended up having to tase this guy and three of us handcuff him. Uh, I wasn't there when this happened, but he reminded me all about this situation. Uh, and then proceeded to basically blame me for that situation and then explain why I wasn't allowed in his house. And I, again, tried to reason with him, like, look, I'm here because your family's concerned about you. And he didn't want to talk to me. He made sure that I knew he didn't want me there. He made sure to lead me down a path to believe he had a weapon. Uh, and then proceeded to retreat back into his room and then pop out with uh, heavy metal music playing in an overcoat. And start pointing his finger and become aggressive and tell me how much bigger he was than the last time. And then he goes back into his room and barricades himself. And I looked at the family and I said, because I really thought I, I was, if this guy reaches for anything, I, I may have to do something in front of this family. And that kind of made me a little antsy. And so I looked at the situation and I thought, okay, I don't know what he has in his room. He's obviously made it very clear that he wants to fight. Uh, so I called my supervisor and I said, I'm going to leave him in there and I'm leaving. And uh, I will write a report and forward it to our mental health team. Because he obviously doesn't want anything to do with me right now. And so that's what we did. I just let him go. Um, but in terms of how that's a slow process, uh, when we first talked about this, it, what really came to mind was my marriage. Um, we had probably the first three years of our marriage were very tough. 
uh, we didn't have like that initial honeymoon phase, but we got to a place where uh, we just decided we weren't okay just being okay. And it took several years of just saying, we're going to do the hard work that we need to do to get to a place where we can say, yeah, things are good. Are they the best? Are they perfect? No, not at all. Um, but that slow process of peacemaking exists even in my relationship at home. Um, because when you lack peace at home, as we all know, it's just chaotic for the whole rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, you know, uh, all of us, some of us might not have volatile situations like these, right? Where we're talking about like real scenarios where, um, you know, there's, there's uh, very real and clear threats. The majority of us, we don't have these same kinds of threats, but we do have situations that are contentious and situations that need us to move slowly, um, situations where the brokenness of the world is frustrating us, is causing us pain and grief. And one of the things that I am so thankful for in our culture is that while it's not, we're not fully there, but recognizing struggles in mental health uh, are becoming more common. Uh, more places are talking about that. There's less stigma on things like counseling. And Adam, I know that you have been in just your, in your short, relatively short time as a police officer. I don't know what the average career of a police officer is, but you're, you know, in many ways still on the very uh, new side of that uh, in the last uh, few years, um, have already experienced some very difficult um, situations in life that, that really no one should be subjected to. Um, and I know out of that, you've seen some, how that's uh, had negative effects on some of the people who you work with. Um, but yet there's still this stigma when it comes to getting those people help that they need in order to be able to move forward in a, in a direction towards wholeness and healing um, that, that often prevents us from doing those um, activities, whether it be counseling or therapy or whatever kind of help that we need. But why is it that you think that oftentimes uh, the practices which would provide healing and wholeness for us are often frowned upon? Uh, I don't know if it's a, um, in my profession at least, if it's a, a pride thing, uh, if it's a, a um, arrogance thing. I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but this word stigma is a perfect example. And as I was thinking about this and, and contemplating it, it's, uh, there's a couple of guys on my shift that they'll be like, come on, bring it in for a hug. Or you have to say it in a manly way, at least, a, a two-man <laughs> huddle. And uh, when, you, when two of us as officers, we decide, hey, we're going to give each other a hug, all I can think of is, all I can feel is all of my gear and all of this person's gear between myself and them. I've got a vest on, I've got my radio strapped over my shoulder, he's got a vest on, a radio strapped over his shoulder, and we both have these huge gun belts. And I really think that's a, a metaphor in a way for how we deal with the inside of us, whether it's men or women in law enforcement. Um, we just have to have hard outer shells. And because you have to have a hard outer shell for when people cuss you out or proclaim these kinds of things, this is just how you are, or whatever it is, um, it's hard then to be let that down and take a look on the inside because then you'd almost have to admit, hey, some of this does affect me. Um, and, th and that's a difficult thing. And uh, I'm trying to be better at that. I've noticed I've become a little more guarded since I've become a police officer than I was as a pastor. Um, but I also knew that I was probably going to struggle with this a little more than the average officer, or at least be try to be more honest with myself about it. So I had counseling, a plan for counseling already set up. 
Yeah. And sometimes it's those preventative measures, um, like the plan already set up, that are the most important things. Uh, so Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, and then he says, right after that, uh, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. Uh, and so uh, as we were talking again, some of these same stories came up where uh, I was like, you are trying to actively seek peace in these difficult situations, and you're, that's not always received well, right? Um, so uh, uh, the next question is, is in what ways, um, nope, that's not the right question that I put up there. Um, how has it, uh, how have you been persecuted? And if persecuted is too strong of a word, um, how have uh, people responded to you in, in a not kind way as you have sought peacemaking? Yeah, uh, so one, one situation when we talked about this came to our mind. We were in Afghanistan, and even though you're in a country to do war, there's a lot of, you just have to keep up with like kind of all the trainings you have to do, suicide prevention, uh, first aid, you know, all the stuff that, a lot of you probably do, like in, uh, depending on your profession, you have to do these trainings every year. And one of them was uh, sexual assault. So talking about long-term changes, one of the issues the Army, the military as a whole has is issues with sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape, and stuff like that. So we do a lot of training on it and a lot of um, don't do it, basically. <laughs> or this is how you report it, this is how you recognize it. And so we're in this country, there's, we're a group of, a tent full of guys getting this training, infantry, a lot of machoism, bravado, you know, type stuff. And uh, there's this one poor, it's not right, but this one sergeant coming in, she, and she's coming to teach this sexual harassment training. And they're pushing back, and the, the scenario was, like, how would you talk to a soldier who has approached you with sexual assault? Like, I've been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, which... Uh, you, a lot of people may not think happens in an all-male unit, but uh, it's, it happens a lot. And these guys were just going on and on. And I just, um, one of my things as a contrarian is to be contrarian and to interrupt people. And I remember asking the question like, well, why wouldn't you just talk to them or something like that? You know, something simple like, why wouldn't you just do what the training is telling you to do? Because it seems so simple to me. Just talk to the person and and. I got made fun of so much for that. Like I was soft and not cool. And blah. <laughs> and so you just kind of had to take it. But at the same time, you just were trying to say, just be a better person. But people didn't want to hear that or they just looked at you as like, um, I don't know, like you just soft, I guess is the right word for them. I, it's, it was so dumb and it didn't last very long. But I just knew at that moment, like, again, that was like another, this isn't really for you. If you can't just say, talk to somebody. Um, then why why even bother? Yeah, so. yeah. Well, they're definitely in our culture, um, and I can only speak to this as a as a man because that's what I am. But uh, there seems to be this bravado that if you're a peacemaker, then you are less masculine than the person who is willing to fight or willing to make fun of or poke fun of or whatever. But well, yeah, I want to add to it's funny like. This unit, they could have such moments of, of that, bravado and machoism, but such moments of, like, tenderness, too, which is so interesting. You talked about uh, counseling, and when we were in Afghanistan, we had three guys killed by a suicide bomber, and uh, one of them was my mentor, Sean, the guy from the first story, actually. And uh, I remember we had a bunch of people from a bunch of different units come in for the, the final call ceremony, which is the whole thing. And I remember walking up to this guy, and he just, like, gave me a hug out of nowhere. Like, he's like, how are you doing, man? And I was like... 
I would never have expected that from you. And um, so there's like this weird, like such tenderness and understanding of death, but that was like a, a hero's way to die mm. versus like sexual assault and like caring for other people, even if they're not dead. Mm. So Interesting. Adam, you have anything to add to that? Uh, I, I don't know if I necessarily would call it being persecuted as a, as a peacemaker, other than I, so in our profession, obviously mental health and suicide rate is very high. Um, I think one of the highest in the country. And uh, so when people take a leave of absence for mental health, uh, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, they should be back right away because they got their day off. Um, so I was on a call where uh, uh, they deemed it a critical incident, involved the death of a child. Uh, and me, my partner and I were given a day off. And so I came back uh, the next week after my one day off and my partner thought that was too soon because he was really struggling. He had um, been on, that would have been his third critical incident in less than like three or four years. And he never sought help for the prior two. Uh, so he ends up having like, he's just really struggling um, and ended up having to go see several psychiatrists and, and get some real help um, medicinally, like actually giving him prescribing him medicine. And so the, the questions were raised to me like, well, you're back already. And I was like, well, hold on. First off, I wasn't okay when I came back. I had to actually seek counseling while I was at work. And second, uh, he's dealt with all of this stuff. I said, you have no idea what his brain's going through and every person's different. And I think he was out for like three months um, just because of that. And it was a very, it was very much the popular opinion among our shift that he was just milking it. And I was like, hold up. And so I tried to pump the brakes on it as much as I could. And I'm not sure necessarily that was a popular opinion, but it brought he and I a lot closer. Hmm. Um, and so I don't know if I'd call it persecuted, but obviously it wasn't seen as the popular opinion around our yeah. station. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sometimes persecuted feels like a strong term, but I think that's what Jesus is talking about is that people are going to, you know, challenge you when you go down this road of being a peacemaker. Uh, so uh, in what ways, Adam, uh, have you been challenged as a person who desires the wholeness of Christ, who desires to be a peacemaker? Uh, in what ways have you been challenged in difficult situations as a police officer? Yeah, so uh, I, coming from the background of being a pastor, uh, when I first told my wife I wanted to be a police officer, she's like, no. Uh, she says, you can't do that. And she goes, there's no way you think that way. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I was put with certain training officers that helped pull me a little bit out of that shell. Uh, and I've done things that have helped pull me out of that shell, hang around with certain people, not necessarily that are are just mean people, but that just do the job right and that also have a caring side to them. So anyway, uh, last Sunday I was on uh, just routine patrol, pulling uh, traffic stops um, just to see what's going on. And we profile vehicles sometimes and like, hey, what's it coming from this area for? What's this vehicle like? And so you look at things and if it's got a reason to stop it, you stop it. So pull this vehicle over. It was just mainly an insurance investigation, contact the driver come back to my car and start running the driver. And all of a sudden I see this warrant pop up. That's not uncommon. But then, so I start reading through the warrant, like, do I really have my guy? And then I read the details on it and I was like, oh, okay, I've never had this before. This is a capital murder warrant. So I had to slow myself down. I was like, okay, think. First off, get my back up here. Second, confirm this is what I'm seeing. So I get back up coming. Um, 
an officer, thankfully, was scanning the station that I had told the, the, we call it NCIC, the National Database Operator, uh, what the warrant was for. He was scanning that, so he knew what was going on. So he starts coming to me, assigned himself to the call. And I don't know if the north side guy, uh, our city is split by 183 Airport Freeway, uh, heard what was going on or what, but he started coming to me. So my brain never fully switched over to this is high alert, what we would call a felony stop, where as officers we then go into a super tactical situation where we're pulling our guns out, we don't approach the car again, we make this person get out of the car at gunpoint turned away from us. Uh, and, that's, and we're trained that way because that's the safe thing to do, because this warrant also, obviously if capital murder is the most serious murder you can commit, and it also said armed and dangerous. So I get my back up there. I had also asked to make sure this guy can't flee on us because with this kind of person, we're going to chase him till the end. He's either going to wreck out or we're going to stop him. Um, so I get everybody there, and nobody's come lights and sirens or anything. And uh, I had known at this time that I had had uh, kept this guy calm. I knew what was going on in that car because I had looked in the car. The only thing I had questions about was the passenger. I knew the car window didn't roll down. I knew that he had to open that front door. So I looked back at my first officer that was right here, and I totally did everything wrong tactically. And I said, are you ready? And he has no idea what I have. And so I walk up to the car, yank the car door open, and just grab his arm and pull him out of the car. And I said, right now you're being detained because you have a warrant for your arrest. And super unsafe in terms of our tactics as police, but very much the, what I was seeking to do was keep that as low key for that person as possible. Because if he had been calm and had been no clue what was going on, then I knew I could get him out of that car peacefully that whole time. Uh, now, if I have the opportunity to do that over again, I'm not gonna do that again <laughs> that way. Uh, I was thankfully blessed enough to have it turn out safely. But I have this constant tension, I feel like, within myself of how do I be safe, because we always talk about officer safety, and yet peaceful at the same time. And that's that tension I was really fighting there was, okay, I know we could do X, Y, and Z, but I also know that I can hopefully make this end safely by just continuing to operate where we've been the whole time and not amp things up for this guy. Yeah. Yeah, and as you were sharing that story with me um, earlier this week, I, I thought about that a lot and how probably, like, like you were saying, tactically speaking, this is a very bad idea. But there still is this dynamic that we see as understanding th things through the kingdom of God that what you offered this person, even though he clearly didn't deserve it based on the situations that he's found himself in previously, you offered him a wholeness and a grace that most people wouldn't have uh, gone through. And I, I was actually thinking about this after we talked about it, that perhaps now he is uh, sitting in a, in a, in a cell somewhere, uh, and at least I would like to think, and he's thankful that that interaction was with you um, because of how that could have ended very poorly for him. Um, yeah, so actually one of the things I always try to do with somebody that if they're open to it, and you can read fairly well as an officer if somebody's open to it. This guy came pretty emotional as we were on the way to jail because he realized what was going on, and he was struggling to keep himself from crying. And so I helped him wipe his tears with his shirt, and I said, man, I said, you don't have anything else on you. And I was just talking to him. I said, look, I've played it cool with you this whole time. And he goes, yeah. And he actually thanked me. Hmm. Yeah. 
That's really neat. And like somebody, you know, we've been talking a lot about labels and how we view people and how we see people based on the labels that they carry. And that person was somebody who like you should have never treated that way. Uh, but uh, you did. And through that, you know, maybe his humanity was uh, a little bit more uh, validated in that situation. Okay. Uh, so we're going to wrap things up real quick, but uh, just one, one quick thing to sort of end on. Uh, we're talking about fasting, flexing our discipline muscles as we um, always try to wrap it up into practices that form and shape us into the image of Christ. What uh, are, uh, is a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice that you might recommend in order for us to flex our peacemaking muscles? Uh, prayer, uh, prayer and scripture, it helps, and then um, as a spiritual practice, but actually living it out, like taking the bold step in faith to do what God has called us to do, and to see that most of the time it's going to work out, or at least you know, like it, you can have faith in that. So, yeah. uh, for me, my practices every day are uh, scripture reading and journaling. My mm -hmm. prayers or thoughts from that scripture. Um, every day before I go into work or do anything else. And then um, as far as practically, uh, I think I try to, I'm not always good at this, uh, is believe the best about people, even if I'm seeing an ugly side of them, uh, even if I, they've given me every reason not to believe the best, believe that there's something in there, some form of humanity that's still there. Hmm. Um, and so like one of the things I do is I, I keep uh, this big old pack of... Um, peanut butter crackers in my car from Sam's in case I come across anybody who uh, may be homeless or struggling or even even if they're a criminal or have a criminal history uh, that I can say to them, hey, here's this, this crackers just to help you out for the day. Hmm. And everybody knows Sam's has the best peanut butter crackers. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. I just... Uh, well, so as, as we talk about peacemaking, obviously this is a difficult thing for us to try and imagine. We live in a world that is obsessed with violence. Um, you just turn on the te television tonight and you'll see that on full display and nearly every channel. Uh, if it's not violence, it's conflict that draws us in. Uh, but the reality is, is that Jesus calls us to exist in these environments as peacemakers, as people who live in a way that opens up the possibility for um, wholeness to be available to everyone, to live as people who, because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us, uh, are creating situations of peace which provide an existing alternative to, uh, or an alternative to the existing arrangement. Uh, so thank you guys for sharing that with us. Um, hopefully uh, we can see that if people can be in such volatile situations, um, that in the, the uh, situations that we face in uh, our lives, um, that we can seek peace in those. Um, let's pray together um, as we transition into communion as Jesus taught us to. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.